Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Two shocking hit and runs caught on camera. Do the right thing. Come forward. Speak to our investigators. The devastating impact that killed one man and left another in serious condition. Also tonight, travel rules take another turn. Now I can go home thanks to this. How airports could get even busier as the vaccine mandate is lifted. And a real catch on the Fraser River. Comes fishing once and catches the biggest fish in the river. How they actually did catch a fish this big and why they threw it back. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Chris is off tonight. We begin with two separate hit and runs. One in Vancouver, one in Surrey, and both caught on camera. First, Kitsilano, where a young man was killed and a vehicle recovered. But as Jasmine Bala reports, investigators are asking for help as they look for the driver and try to piece together exactly what happened. Flowers tied to a lamppost. All that's left of a tragic scene Sunday night. We believe he was thrown through the air. Um, He died at the scene. He likely died uh, quite instantly. Police say a 24-year-old man was crossing the road with a friend when he was struck and killed. The disturbing moment caught on surveillance camera. 11.24 p.m. near the corner of Arbutus and West 4th, two cars appear on screen. Two seconds later, the victim's body skids along the ground. There was a newer model gray sedan uh, that we believe was traveling at a high rate of speed going eastbound on West 4th Avenue. When he stops rolling, he doesn't move. The whole terrifying ordeal is over in less than five seconds. Just before 11.30, a woman covers the man's body with a blanket. The driver fled the scene. The distance between the intersection and where the man is seen landing on video is nearly 100 meters. We do have a vehicle that was recovered. Um, We're working to determine whether or not it was the vehicle that was involved in the collision. Right now we need, um, time is of the essence in investigations like, uh, like these. Police say the vehicle was recovered in Vancouver, but can't say exactly where it was found for investigative reasons. It's still in the early stages, and officers say they don't yet have the answer to who had the right of way. Now they are appealing to anyone with dash cam or surveillance video to help identify who was driving the vehicle. We ask people to come forward, um, tell us what they know so that we can quickly solve this case, because a man has died as a result of this, and we need to solve this quickly. The investigation continues as the memorial on the side of the road grows. Jasmine Bala, Global News. 
Now the hit and run in Surrey, which sent one person to hospital. A warning, these images might be difficult to watch. Global News has obtained footage of the crash. It shows a taxi driver working in the back seat of his cab at around 6.20 this morning in the 8400 block of 132nd Street. The cabbie turns at the last second and catches a glimpse of the SUV that's about to rip the back door off the van. He is thrown to the ground as the door skids along the pavement. The taxi driver was rushed to hospital with serious A short time later, a vehicle was found set on fire a few blocks away. Police say it matches the description of the vehicle involved in the hit and run. It is unusual to see a vehicle set on fire um, following a collision. However, the fact that the, the vehicle was stolen um, you know, we are also looking into whether it had uh, any associations to any other ongoing investigations. The victim is expected to recover. Anyone with information or dash cam footage of either location is asked to contact Surrey RCMP. A big change today for COVID travel rules. Unvaccinated people can now board a plane or a train for domestic travel. Grace Key joins us live from YVR with more. And Grace, it comes as airport security screeners begin a new kind of job action to bring attention to the changes they're looking for. Yeah, you know, it's certainly been a very stressful situation for screeners and passengers who are all caught in those long security lines. And now, of course, everyone is bracing for what could lie ahead with these latest mandate changes and the busy summer travel season. The summer travel season is here, and it's just gotten easier for people to board a plane or hop on a train. Starting Monday, you no longer have to show proof of vaccination when traveling within Canada or leaving Canada. Passengers seem to be taking it in stride. I actually am part of that demographic, so I'm really lucky because otherwise I would have been stuck and homeless. I personally feel safer knowing I'm around vaccinated folks. I mean, it can last forever, so I guess... I guess it's about time. I think that makes things a lot more convenient that so you don't have to show it. Uh, if the higher-ups believe that's what should be done, then I'm all for it. Security screening officers at 42 airports across Canada, including Abbotsford, declared the day casual Monday. They wore street clothes to draw attention to concerns over pay and working conditions. Understaffing issues were brought to light after passengers experienced long waits. We're just calling on the federal government, on CATSA, on the third-party contractors to step up, uh, make sure the funding is there for enough employees and for wages and working conditions that will retain those employees and attract new employees so that we don't have these uh, challenges uh, continuing and compounding in the future. We are seeing improvements today. In fact, last week we saw a reduction uh, in waiting time by 50%. We're now seeing that 90% of uh, passengers going through CATSA are waiting 50 minutes or less, which was a significant improvement from where it used to be a few weeks ago. So we're acting. Um, and we're continuing to add resources. Early Monday afternoon, passengers in this line say it was moving smoothly with about a 15 to 30 minute wait. Yeah, yeah, it's, it moves, it moves. Yeah, so as for those lines, we've been uh, popping in ever so often. So late afternoon, you'd, as you'd expect, there are no lines right now. But as you saw earlier, we were here early afternoon and keeping an eye on those lines. And yeah, I'd say passengers said it, the line looked big, but the passengers said it was about 15, 30 minutes or so. Sophie?
That's uh, encouraging to hear. Thanks for that. Grace Key reporting at YVR. And Keith Baldry joins us now to talk more about the vaccine mandate, but this time provincially. Uh, Keith, the B.C. Liberals are saying we should end mandates for health care workers. What would be the impact of that? Because, you know, we've talked about labor shortages mm-hmm. in that sector, too. Yeah, very interesting. Last week, unexpectedly, the B.C. Liberals did call for an end to vaccine mandates in healthcare and the broader public service. Uh, not talking about a heck of a lot of people affected here. Here's how the numbers break down in healthcare in terms of people who are unvaccinated as a result have been terminated. That's about 2,500 people. Uh, surprisingly, only 569 full-time employees. The vast majority, or not the vast majority, the majority of uh, employees who have been terminated are casual workers, basically people on call. So it's not quite leading to the staff shortages you normally think associated with 2,500 people being taken off the job. Less than 1% of full-time employees are unvaccinated. Again, we put the question to Dr. Bonnie Henry today. Will those vaccine mandates end in healthcare or the uh, broader public service anytime soon? And here's her answer. Here in BC, and uh, the public service uh, has made the decision to do to take the initiative. I know that it's 99% of people are vaccinated, and I think at right now, with the uncertainties that we have, it's fully reasonable to continue with the course, and certainly in healthcare settings. So the healthcare settings are under her purview. So that vaccine mandate is not going to be lifted anytime soon. There continues to be concern about how we could be in a completely different world when it comes to COVID-19 in the fall. So the vaccine mandates remain on the books despite the opposition call for them to be removed. All right. Thanks for that, Keith. Well, for those who still haven't had their shots, there are plenty to go around. More than 200,000 doses of COVID-19 vaccine are set to expire in B.C. next month, raising questions about whether the province has a plan to hand out fourth doses to the general public. Richard Zussman has more. It is a race to avoid waste. We know that there's going to be increased wastage when you have many more providers. Right now, there are more than 225,000 doses of COVID-19 Moderna vaccine set to expire before July 23rd. 430,000 more Pfizer doses expiring before November 30th, and nearly 40,000 Pfizer pediatric vaccines expiring before September 30th. There are two major concerns. The first is currently just 53% of British Columbians have received a third COVID dose, meaning 1.6 million people are eligible for that dose and haven't received it. Our first line of defense was and is vaccination. 40% of you have not gotten your third shots. We have them. They're about to expire. Let's work together. We know now, especially for Omicron, you need those three doses. So if you haven't got your booster yet, there's vaccine there for you. Go and get it now. The other issue is BC's restrictive policy on fourth doses. In the United States, for example, any adult can get a fourth dose five months after the third. In BC, only those over 70 are eligible and only after six months. If we have all of these vaccines, I don't understand why people who are wanting to make that choice to get their fourth dose can't have access to the vaccine. But with expiring doses, there's a willingness to make some accommodations. We are offering it to people, particularly people in their their 60s who have reasons why they want to get it, need to get it for going on a cruise ship, other things. Those interested are asked to call the province's vaccine hotline. If eligible, then book an appointment at a pharmacy like this. One place you can't get a shot? A family doctor's office. But some say that should change. This is another way that... Both communication and relationships uh, between family doctors and their patients 
and accessibility of those vaccines could be improved. The other option is donating the vaccine. But Dr. Henry says that isn't possible with these expiring doses for various reasons. And the biggest global issue is not supply, rather vaccine hesitancy and distribution. Richard Zosman, Global News, Victoria. A new study has found you might not need much experience to get a job in this tight job market. New research suggests experience and education are becoming less important because employees are so hard to come by. Census-wide surveyed 1,000 employers across Canada. The survey found 77% of Canadian employers would hire a candidate based on their soft interpersonal skills and attitude toward learning, rather than job-related knowledge and hard skills. 80% of employers say they would consider hiring applicants without a certain level of education and would instead offer on-the-job training. A B.C. farm faces an uncertain future. Heppel Farms grows a huge chunk of the vegetables sold in this province each year on its 220 acres in Surrey. But there are fears those prime fields may end up in the hands of developers. That's next on the NewsHour. When that fish jumped out of the water, the sheer size and magnitude, you know, finally hit us. Uh, it looked like the movie Jaws. They almost needed a bigger boat, an epic catch, and why it probably set a new record later. Plus, after being damaged by King Tide storm, there's potentially some good news when it comes to the reopening of Kitts Pool. That's later on the news hour. Right now, though, a campaign is underway to protect some extremely productive Surrey farmland from development. It's one of the biggest distributors to our province's food security. And yet, as Aaron MacArthur tells us, the city is eyeing it as, as a potential business park. It's the definition of farm to table. Look at these guys. Potatoes grown here are often picked in the morning and are on store shelves that same day. This one field in Surrey, responsible for so much of what British Columbians eat in the late spring. Some mornings we're pulling in 150,000 servings of vegetables. The 220 acres along 192nd Street in Surrey, owned by the federal government, but leased to Heppel Farms. The sandy soil and microclimate allows for planting here weeks earlier than anywhere else in the province. According to farming advocates, it's hard to overestimate this land's value to BC's agriculture sector. This is, without question, the earliest, best, most valuable piece of productive land in Canada. Between a quarter and half of the potatoes produced uh, between May Long and Canada Day are coming from this piece. The federal government is divesting itself of surplus land, and if it's sold, it's not protected by the agricultural land reserve. With industrial land values skyrocketing and lease rates near zero, it's hard to justify the economics of potatoes and carrots. The community has been so responsive. People are just so fascinated that so much of the produce that they actually eat comes from a random field in Surrey. The city of Surrey sent a statement indicating it's not aware of any plans to include this land in the ALR, noting the Campbell Heights community plan was finalized two decades ago to increase opportunities for employment. And while the city says it supports local food initiatives, the Surrey Farmers Institute says industrial land can go anywhere. This land is uniquely suited to agriculture. What we're looking for now is true leadership. Leadership at all levels that will actually make the hard decision. 
A petition has been launched to pressure the federal government to include this property in the ALR. The group also pressing Surrey City Council to amend the Campbell Heights official community plan. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. The federal government has laid out its plan to ban a number of single-use plastics. By the end of this year, companies will no longer be allowed to manufacture or import plastic grocery bags, cutlery, certain takeout containers, ring carriers, stir sticks and straws. Their sale will be banned by the end of next year. Ottawa says over the next decade, the move will result in the elimination of more than 1.3 million tons of hard-to-recycle plastic waste and 22,000 tons of plastic pollution. In drafting these regulations, we've worked hard to hit the right balance between reducing single-use plastics and making sure that Canadians have access to the products they need, including those that are critical to medical care. Because as much as Canadians dislike seeing plastic pollution in our parks, our waterways, and most importantly impacting marine life in our oceans, plastics continue to play an essential role in our economy. In Canada, up to 15 billion plastic checkout bags are used every year, and approximately 16 million straws are used every day. Coming up, a B.C. father convicted of killing his own daughters is back in court. Why the heartbreaking case isn't over yet. Next. And later, the Millennium Scoop. Indigenous children taken from their families take the government to court. Traffic is steady in both directions over here tonight at the Botello Bridge after clearing an earlier stall northbound past the north end. Get best in class protection and savings with BCAA Insurance. Learn more at BCAA.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Botello Bridge. The special stories that shape our province, as suggested by our viewers. This is BC with Jay Durant. Real people, real stories. This is BC with Jay Durant is brought to you in part by Van Camp Freightways, BC owned and operated for 75 years. An appeal began today for the Oak Bay man convicted of murdering his two young daughters on Christmas Day five years ago. It's being held in Vancouver and due to strong interest from media and the public, it's also being live streamed to a courtroom in Victoria. Our Kristen Robinson was at today's hearing. Andrew Berry was not present in court as his legal counsel laid out three categories in the grounds for the appeal of his second-degree murder conviction and sentence. Tim Russell is challenging the admissibility of statements made by Berry at the crime scene and in hospital, based on common law and charter principles. The latter statements were made while Berry was detained under the Mental Health Act. In a pure mental health context, you have a right to silence. Russell told the appeal court he's alleging a breach of charter rights, claiming his client was not informed of his right to silence. Barry's defense is also challenging issues from the trial process, including the accused's allegation of an inadequate investigation and the trial judge's charge to the jury. Barry was convicted of killing his two daughters on Christmas Day in 2017. A jury found him guilty of two counts of second-degree murder in the deaths of six-year-old Chloe and four-year-old Aubrey Berry, whose bodies were discovered in his Oak Bay apartment. Berry was found lying in his bathtub with several stab wounds. Chloe and Aubrey were found stabbed to death in their beds. Two years later, in December 2019, Berry was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for 22 years. 
The appeal will be heard through Thursday with the Crown expected to begin responding to Barry's arguments on Tuesday. Kristen Robinson, Global News. In dramatic testimony today at the trial of a Dutch man accused of harassing and extorting BC teen Amanda Todd before she took her own life. The court heard from a Netherlands police officer who was involved in the covert investigation and eventual arrest of 44-year-old Aidan Coban. Rumi Nadea has the details. A silent entry through the front door by two covert plainclothes officers with the Dutch National Police who tried to enter the suspect's bedroom quietly January 13, 2014. Chief Inspector Yuri Van Scheindel monitoring the body cams of his colleagues from a nearby residence. During the arrest, Van Scheindel described how the accused, 44-year-old Aidan Coban, cut his right eye on a radiator before the officers got control of him on the floor of Bungalow 55 in a holiday park in the Netherlands. Coban handcuffed, blindfolded and headphones put over his ears so he couldn't see or hear what was happening. After Coban was taken away, Van Scheindel said microphones and technical equipment installed by police in an undercover operation about a month before Coban's arrest were removed. Van Scheindel told the jury he observed Coban, no one else, coming and going from the bungalow several times in the weeks leading up to the arrest. The powerful testimony ending with Van Scheindel pointing out Coban in the prisoner's box as the man he arrested more than eight years ago. Defense just commencing its cross-examination, which will continue Tuesday. Romina Dea, Global News. A mother seeking accountability for the death of her daughter. Honestly, I feel like unless this happens to someone in the government, to one of their loved ones, they're not going to know what this is like. Still ahead, her fight for answers and why she feels the system works against grieving families. Plus, the missing soldiers of Mariupol, growing concern for those captured by Russian forces. Attention consumers having issues with scammers, price gougers, corner cutters, con artists, or big business bullies. Help is here. Andrewa investigates consumer matters on Global News. Counterflow is out over here at the Massey Tunnel and traffic is actually in pretty decent shape both ways on Highway 99. A much better option for you at this point than Highway 91 through Richmond. Get best-in-class protection and savings with BCAA Insurance. Learn more at BCAA.com. I'm Trisha Wisson in Global One at the Massey Tunnel. The families of Ukrainian soldiers who've been captured by the Russian military are pleading for information about their loved ones. It's been a month since those holed up in a Mariupol steel plant have had communication with their families. Global's Kyle Benning has more. It took Russian soldiers weeks to gain control over the Ukrainian port city of Mariupol, with much of it bombed into oblivion. Katerina Prokopenko last spoke with her husband, Denis, about three weeks ago. That phone call only lasted 13 seconds. He could only ask me how I am, and I answered that everything was okay. How he was, and I did not get an answer because the connection was really bad. He did not hear me, I did not hear him. Dennis is the Azov Regiment commander, a group of soldiers who were holed up in the Azovstal steel plant as the Russian military surrounded the city. Hundreds of troops and civilians were captured by Russians, including Maria Netreba's husband. She was told by the International Committee of the Red Cross 
or ICRC, that he was being taken to a part of Donetsk, which Russia has labeled an independent state. But as for now, we don't know for sure whether they are now there or whether they were taken to the territory of Russian Federation. A University of Calgary political scientist who researches international law and political violence says there is a reason to be concerned if Russia is not working with the ICRC. Maureen Hebert says the organization is responsible for ensuring the Geneva Conventions are followed which includes knowing POW's location and well-being. Family members and their own home army knows that they have been captured, where they're in captivity, and the relative state that they're in, whether they've been injured, whether they're sick, that they're receiving medical care, and so on. Last month, the ICRC released a statement saying not all families have received information about loved ones and called for full access to POWs and civilian internees. But there is still not peace of mind for families. He told me, Tanya, don't you cry. My dad will come back home. He promised me. In the month since that news conference, Tatiana Karko says she's heard nothing about her brother. Their children are waiting for them at home. Their mothers are waiting for them. Their wives, sisters and so on are waiting for them as well. The Ukrainian president has made it clear he would like to bring POWs home, but it's unclear whether Moscow will agree to an exchange. Kyle Benning, Global News. The Federal Court of Canada has certified a class action lawsuit against the federal government on behalf of a group the plaintiffs call the Millennium Scoop, off-reserve Indigenous children who were taken from their families and placed in non-Indigenous care. The class action alleges the federal government's actions breached the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and demonstrated systemic negligence. The class action includes status and non-status Indian, Inuit and Métis children and their families who were not living on reserves. The action seeks damages, restitution and recovery of specific costs. Beginning in the late 1980s, the federal government stopped funding off-reserve Indigenous child welfare. Uh, it left that to the provinces and the territories. We say this was not okay. Canada has a constitutional responsibility to all Indigenous children, not just those living on reserve land. After all the experience that I had, all the turbulations, all the struggle I faced trying to access information, to learn about my family, to connect with my family, and the resistance I faced while in the child welfare system was finally validated. The court has ruled the class action suit covers the time period between January 1st, 1992 and December 31st, 2019. None of the claims has been proven in court. A new crosswalk will soon be installed in Burnaby to honor reconciliation. The design for the crosswalk was unveiled today. Students at Westridge Elementary School have been studying the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's 94 calls to action. They decided to focus on number 82, which calls on communities to install a highly visible residential schools monument. The students chose a crosswalk. We wanted to find a way to acknowledge and apologize for all the acts of racism against Indigenous peoples past and present in Canada in a more meaningful way and do our part to contribute to the solution moving forward. When we started brainstorming, one member of our group, Raven, had the idea of painting a crosswalk that would be representative of our commitment towards a reconciled Canada. It was both for them 
as, as, a, as a youth to be able to, to know that they can make a change in the community, but also that not everything revolves around them. It's for truth and reconciliation and for, like, to fix a little bit of the past, unfortunately. The finished crosswalk will replace the north-south crosswalk for the Drummond's Walk Urban Trail across Union Street near the elementary school. A new study will look at the future of post-secondary education in one of B.C.'s fastest-growing areas. The province has announced $250,000 to conduct a needs assessment in Pitt Meadows and Maple Ridge. Kwantlen, the University of the Fraser Valley, Douglas College and the Justice Institute of B.C. will all be involved. The population of Maple Ridge grew 10% in just five years, and that means a lot of students graduating from high school. But students from the region are more more likely than others in BC to end their studies at that because of the cost and inconvenience of commuting to college. We, we hear this a lot. I mean, I, I have five kids and uh, that was something that they told me is the first day my uh, middle child went to BCIT, tried to uh, take a bus and it took two and a half hours. And uh, so there's some, some real challenges if you're coming out of a uh, high school in Maple Ridge, uh, making that transition to post-secondary, it's so important. A labor market forecast projects 80% of the available jobs in the next decade will require post-secondary education. Well, her 29-year-old daughter died after being sent home from Lionsgate Emergency Department. Now, her grieving mother says she's being further victimized by a system that protects doctors over patients. John Hua has the story. Whatever happened to keeping a patient under observation? and only sending them home if their condition has improved. There was one specific doctor at Lionsgate who failed to do his job. The College of Physicians and Surgeons of BC found that didn't happen on Natasha's third visit to the emergency at Lionsgate Hospital before the 29-year-old died of toxic shock syndrome on October 12, 2020. Why, in her third visit, was she being sent home with no diagnosis? Even with the college committee's criticism of one ER doctor for inadequate assessment and documentation of vital signs on discharge, Forey's mother says there's no accountability. It's absolute garbage. There's no other way to put it. In a final letter to Forey, the college writes the doctor attended for an interview with registrar staff to discuss the issues raised by your complaint. This satisfies the recommendation made by the inquiry committee in its conclusion of the complaint. And I can only presume they said, um, you know, next time a patient comes in after the second visit, don't send them home to die. Forey says this is further proof a medical review process often touted by government as a path forward towards answers and accountability is not there to help patients or their families. I'm absolutely disgusted with the whole process. And so was it worth it? This grieving mother says what makes matters worse, the doctor in question first tried to appeal the decision, but was denied. A total slap in the face. Not only did this doctor not take responsibility, he tried to avoid any accountability. That's renewing calls for the province to reform BC's wrongful death legislation, which currently limits the ability to sue for damages. They would think of retraining their staff, making sure that the proper procedures are in place. Attorney General David Eby committing to reviewing the legislation by the end of this term. But families say they've been waiting on that promise for more than a year, with little sign of progress. Where are they held accountable? Where is everyone's health and safety put first? 
Global News asked the college why no further action was taken, but we're told its investigations are protected under privacy law. It's important to note only matters that go before a disciplinary hearing are made public. But a doctor has the ability to avoid taking it that far. John Hua, Global News. An emergency operations center has been activated in the shoe swap. The warning to residents in low-lying areas as the potential for flooding rises. Plus, the struggle is real. Coquitalam, British British Columbia. (laughs) No. Comedic gold as NFL players try to pronounce a teammate's hometown located right here in B.C. Well, the latest flood concerns in B.C. are focused on the shoe swap. An emergency operations centre has been activated in the region as the potential for flooding rises along with the water. The B.C. River Forecast Centre says with sustained rainfall set to hit Tuesday and Wednesday, rivers and lakes could reach their highest seasonal levels. The South Thompson River could also be affected. Residents in low-lying or flood-prone areas are being urged to take immediate steps to protect their properties. Sandbagging stations have been set up at 22 locations around the region. Well, here's some good summertime news. One of Vancouver's most iconic swimming spots should reopen in time for at least part of the summer. The park board says it now has a plan in place to reopen Kitts Pool in time for the August long weekend. The pool was damaged during January's King Tide storm, but an assessment has now determined that its structural integrity was not compromised and the pool can be safely refilled once the cracks are sealed up. Now, Mother Nature has to cooperate. The repair team needs one full week of dry weather. After that, it'll take another two weeks to get the pool fully back open. A lot of people love that pool, especially in the summertime, Christy. So that's uh, at least a little bit of good news. Half the summer it'll be open. We need that dry week of weather, though, for them, Christy. (laughs) Yeah, so that's what I'm going to try and deliver. You know, we officially change over to summer early tomorrow morning. Sophie, it's not going to feel like summer initially, but we do have some great weather on the way. And that's really the two key aspects that I need to explain. When it comes to the flood scenario, we've got a couple of issues we're looking at. And today we had about four fires, new fires ignited because of the lightning strikes out there. So we're certainly, this next couple of weeks are going to be really crucial. And we're urging everyone to stay tuned. So in the short term, what we're talking about is rainfall for the next 36 to 48 hours. Here's a look. So the more significant rainfall will be along the central coast and in through the central interior, down through the Thompson and the Shushwap area. Those areas under a flood watch at this time because of the rainfall. And we could see up to uh, sorry, 30 millimeters of rain in isolated pockets. A majority, though, talking about 10 to 20 millimeters of rain. Here's the timeline pushing into those coastal regions tomorrow morning. Metro Vancouver should be dry, but we are expecting a few light showers later in the day, but definitely the bulk of that rainfall north of our region, though, pushing into those areas that are under a flood watch at this time. Now, beyond that, Wednesday is going to be a transition day, and it looks like we are going to see a prolonged period of sunshine and heat, everyone. Probably the first time we've seen it, or it is the first time we've seen it so far this year. We're talking about the potential for five days. That's good news for the Kits area, uh, but not great news when it comes to a flood scenario. When we've got uh, moisture and then a surge 
in heat, that is cause for concern. So here's a look at the next 24 hours. Again, the heaviest rain across the central coast in the interior, central and caribou region. Across the far south, far less. And for the south coast, Metro Vancouver, I've put in a slight chance of showers, but mostly we're looking at cloud as we transition into summer. Late tomorrow, though, we'll see a few showers and we'll see that into Wednesday morning as well. But beyond that, sort of late Wednesday, Sophie, certainly Thursday through Monday, it looks like potentially we could see that sunshine and warmth where we're talking about temperatures away from the water into the upper 20s. Tonight's central windows weather window coming to you from Penticton. Shirley Malikoff sending us that one. Great shot of those gorgeous uh, clouds in the distance there and areas in the interior next uh, come the weekend could see temperatures in the 30s. So back to you. All right. Thanks, Christy. Well, you know, not all place names in BC are that easy to pronounce. So you got to give the dolphins credit. Well, especially if you're from not from here. Exactly. Even if you are from here. I mean, how would somebody from not here <laughs> pronounce Quinell? Or I was just thinking Osoyus. Osoyus. So many O's. Euculet. Esquimalt. I was going to say Esquimalt. I know someone who actually said that to me. Are you, dear, you live close to Esquimalt? No, I live close to, a, well, not really a, a Squimalt I've heard of, but not Esquimalt. <laughs> anyway, so can the Miami Dolphins pronounce the hometown of teammate Javon Holland? Coquitalam, British, British Columbia. <laughs> Sounds so much more exotic no. when it's Coquitalam. Anyway, Holland was born in Coquitlam. He challenged a bunch of his teammates to properly say the name of his hometown. We'll uh, hear more. Also ahead, reeling in a giant, the monster sturgeon pulled in from the Fraser by a pair of first-timers later. Big news for Canucks fans. Yes, they've been talking about this for a little while. Um, The Canucks management team, along with Bruce Boudreaux, put on the charm offensive and they got Russian free agent winger Andre Kuzmenko to say yes to joining the Vancouver Canucks after he was pursued by a number of NHL teams. The Oilers were one as well who wanted him. The deal cannot be officially signed until July 13th, but it's done. So now, what does Kuzmenko give the Canucks? For one, he likes to wear the number 96, like Pavel Bure did for a while. But don't expect him to be a 21st century Russian rocket, but he will be expected to make the team next season. Now, he was never drafted in the NHL, but he has steadily improved in the KHL. This past season, Kuzmenko had 20 goals and 53 points in 45 games. That was actually second best in the KHL. In the playoffs, he had 14 points in 16 games. We don't know if his upward trend in the Russian League will continue in the NHL, but quite frankly, it is worth a shot to bring him in and find out. In that sense, Signing him is a good move. Well, can the Avalanche go up 3-0 in this series and pretty much end it? Playing in Tampa Bay is a bit different than playing at home, and that looks a little more like vintage Vasilevsky. The great save off JT Comfer here to keep it 0-0. Now, Colorado would score the first goal. However, Tampa Bay gets one back. Anthony Sorelli, I think he wanted to make a move. The puck went off his stick and fooled Darcy Kemper 1-1. Then, some nice passing by the uh, Lightning. Palat, Stamkos, Palat, 2-1 for Tampa. And early in the second period, they get another one. This time, Nick Paul. It's now 4-2 Lightning as they have to win this one to get back in the series. The Canada Cup softball tournament is underway at Softball City, and it continues through Sunday. 
All the best teams from around the world are there, including Canada, which of course won bronze at the last Olympics. Now this Canadian team is in a bit of a transition from the past generation to a new generation of players who will be under the direction of one of the stars from the last generation, Kaylee Rafter. These will all come together, catchers will come out, come to pitcher. She's used to barking orders at the ballpark, only now it's not from behind home plate. Kaylee Rafter swapped her catcher's mitt for a clipboard after winning an Olympic bronze medal with Canada in Tokyo last year. I felt like I'd been a coach for the last seven, eight years on the team anyway, so um, just very excited to kind of continue this, but the transition's been awesome, the team's been amazing, and this is a natural fit for me, um, and really excited that Topo Canada's entrusted me with this opportunity. After a playing career with Canada that started in 2007, Rafter has seen it all in softball, from winning gold with Canada at the Pan American Games in 2015 to hitting a memorable solo home run in 2019 to qualify for the Olympics. And the next generation of Canadian ballplayers is well aware of her accolades. She's been my role model since I was young, you know, catcher, and I'm a catcher as well. So her being my head coach is, it's amazing. Of the 20 players on the roster, only seven of them were part of last year's Olympic bronze medal winning team. So the fresh new faces will be looking to quickly get their game to the next level. It's a challenge that 16-year-old Ruby Anderson from Victoria is looking forward to. Like my dad's always been on a bucket catching for me and now it's like I have Olympians catching for me. It's a big change. It's also a change for those players who are used to seeing Rafter in that position. They've been awesome. They've been really receptive to how we've wanted to coach them and what our process and our flow is. So I think uh, they've been just as willing to kind of compete in this new regime and wanting to kind of continue on what we've built together, but now as, as the leaders of the team. Damian Warner has pulled out of uh, this week's Canadian Track and Field Championships in Langley because of soreness in one of his knees. It's an issue he has had on and off this season. And with the World Championships coming up in July down in Oregon, he doesn't want to risk further damage, so he'll take a break. He was at the recent Harry Jerome Classic. Of course, he is the reigning Olympic decathlon champion. Miami Dolphins safety Javon Holland was born in Coquitlam when his dad, Robert, played and coached for the BC Lions. And Holland had a very good rookie season with Miami. It didn't take long before everyone knew his name, but do they know how to pronounce the name of his hometown? That was the question that he asked numerous Dolphins and then they posted it on social media. Hi, I'm Javon Holland and this is Pronouncing People's Hometowns. Coquitlam, Coquitlam, British Columbia. Coquitlam, British Columbia. No, I'm not reading that one. I know this one, uh, but I don't. Coquitlam, British Columbia? That's so wrong. What the? Coquitlam, British Columbia? <laughs> I'm not even going to try that one. Coquitlam. Coquitlam? Coquitlam? Coquitlam, British Columbia. Coquitlam, British Columbia. Co... Co... Coquitlam, British Columbia, yeah. Coquitlam, British Columbia? Who from there? Coquitlam, British Columbia. Shout out to the hometown. I love the guy who says Coquitlam. Like, he's very sure of it, too. He's very sure of it. Maybe it'll catch on. Coquitlam. Coquitlam. We'll have to ask Richard Stewart, the mayor of Coquitlam. (laughs) (laughs) Or or my favorite was Coquitlam. What about... Port Coquitlam. 
Yes, or Port Coquitalam. <laughs> It'll always be interesting. So and many they said, variations. It's, it's, it, can you imagine if he was from Esquimalt or well, Quinell or we, a Soyuz? It would have been. We should just send them a new town name every week. That would be good. Do. Pronounce a BC town every week. <laughs> All right, thanks, Squire. Up next, they caught a fish this big, actually bigger than my arm span, and we'll hear their story next. Sarah McDonald standing by with a look ahead to Global News at 11. Sarah? So if we're watching rising water levels across the province with more rain in the forecast in the coming days, we will have a full report tonight. Plus, the reunion one family was not sure they'd ever see. And all thanks to eagle-eyed members of the public, the very happy ending to the unintentional maiden voyage of a homemade sailboat that was stolen just a few days ago. Plus, Squire joins us with highlights of Game 3 of the Stanley Cup Finals. That's all at 11. So. All right. Thank you, Sarah. A stunning catch for anglers in the upper Fraser River near Lillooet. A 700-pound, 10-foot-long white sturgeon. And what makes this even more incredible, the pair were first-time sturgeon fishers. Catherine Urquhart reports. About one hour in. One hour, seven jumps. Along the upper Fraser River in Lillooet, Steve Eklund and Mark Boyce struggled to hang on to their catch. It's their first time sturgeon fishing. Gone downstream maybe a kilometer with him and he's just fighting us hard. On their line is a sturgeon estimated to be 10 feet long and weigh 700 pounds. And Mark and I were like, oh, here we go. Several times it breaches the water. And when that fish jumped out of the water, the the sheer size and magnitude, you know, finally hit us. Uh, it looked like the movie Jaws, you know, in slow motion when Jaws comes out of the water. Uh, incredible. Two hours later, success. The visitors from Alberta are exhausted. It was a great sense of relief when it finally, <laughs> when it ended. Of course, they need proof. This was no fishtail. A few quick hero photos with the sturgeon are mandatory. Pretty exciting. I mean, we do this every day for six or seven months of the year, and that's what we want, right, is everyone wants a 10-foot fish, but it doesn't always happen, and it did, and we're very happy and grateful for that. River Monster Adventures believes this may be the largest one caught on the Upper Fraser, and they think it's more than 100 years old. I mean, that whole boat, it was like a bunch of six-year-olds waiting for Santa Claus to come down the chimney. Moments later, the sturgeon is tagged and released, sure to be talked about for years to come. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. How's that even a fish? <laughs> like Looks a- prehistoric. <laughs> well, it almost yeah. is. Mm-hmm. All right, quick word on the weather, Christy. Mm-hmm. Sure. So uh, dry tonight and mostly dry tomorrow. Looks like bulk of the moisture will be north of us, but I'm keeping in a chance of showers, especially later in the day. You can expect a few showers. All right. Thanks for joining us tonight. Have a good evening, everyone.